Alright, welcome. We are going to jump in straight into the book of Ephesians this afternoon. And if you're here for the very first time, especially welcome to you. My name is Malcolm and I'm one of the senior staff workers here with EU and I'm also a pastor at St Barnabas Anglican Church, just down, or it used to be down at Broadway, currently up at Moore College. Let's pray and then we'll uh, ask God to help us. Father, I pray that as we look into your word that you might speak to us, that you might direct us, that we might leave this place not just being smarter sinners, but changed people. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Several months ago, my wife and I had an opportunity to do something that is uh, terribly unexciting for me. It's sort of a hobby of my wife and when you get married you sort of have to take on board and compromise and, and, and join up hobbies and one of the hobbies that my wife has is shopping. Okay, I, I'm not a big fan of the shopping. Uh, it just doesn't make a lot of sense to me and it's been pointed out before that sort of, you know, women love to go and they love to look and to think and to ponder and then to go to some other place where I'm more of the what do we need, where do we go, let's just go straight to Bunnings Warehouse. <laughs> um, you know, but I, I love to do this. But anyway, we're, we're out there and I'm just sort of humouring my wife and trying to keep a smile and be positive and all that sort of stuff. And nothing was really getting me too excited until we entered the children's video section. Uh, I, have a child, I have a daughter who's four, a son who's two and another little daughter who's six months old. And so we love to get DVDs for the kiddies and I was looking around and I thought, what a great opportunity to get our kids something that they would enjoy. So I was looking around and there was Cinderella and there was Snow White and there was Wiggle stuff, but my eye caught Shrek and I saw this big special Shrek DVD and it wasn't just Shrek, it was Shrek 3D. So I said, this would be great educational value for my children. And so I, I convinced my wife of that. So we purchased the DVD. We got home and we got out the picnic mat. We've got a, a, a nice size TV there on the, on the wall. And we decided, we, we do this every now and then, I convinced the children we're going on a picnic inside. Uh, and so we, we put out the picnic mat. And then we all put on our special 3D glasses. Now, this was kind of cool for everybody. We sat there and we kind of thought this was fun. My son, he sort of had his this way, but, uh, but it, was, it was all good. And we started watching Shrek and I thought, you know, I thought, man, this is amazing. How do they do it so that you can, you can watch it and have Shrek jumping over you or Fiona throwing something at you? I just thought, this is fantastic. And anyway, uh, about halfway through the movie, I thought I'd just take the, the glasses off for a second and I took them off for about two minutes. And I just thought, okay, I'll, just, I'll just watch it and see what it's, how they do this. And as I looked at it, it was just a blurry image. And after about two minutes, my head actually started to, to develop a little bit of a throb. And it was because I was witnessing and viewing an image that I sort of saw clearly and I could make it out and I sort of thought I had my head around what was going on. But because I didn't have my special spectacles on, I just couldn't really appreciate what was going on. A couple of hundred years ago, there was a Christian theologian named John Calvin who wrote, and he would write and talk about having spectacles of faith. And what he meant by that, and what I, what I think the analogy that he presents and that I would like to present today, is something very simple. And that is, and, and by the way, this is not my daughter, uh, just web clip art, okay, 
But I discovered that what Calvin was saying was true of this 3D movie. If you don't, to see clearly, you must have a corrective lens on. To see something clearly, you must have the appropriate sort of vision. And when you don't wear 3D glasses and you watch a 3D film, it won't make a lot of sense. I would suggest to you that all of life and trying to understand God, trying to understand yourself and trying to understand what the purpose in life is, is something that will be very blurry to you until you put on, until you don the spectacles of faith. Now, one of the great things uh, about God and his wisdom, he did not just leave us in the dark and say, here's a blurry movie, try and make the most out of it. No, fortunately in his wisdom, God gave us his word, the Holy Bible, as a means to understanding ourselves and a way of correcting our vision of ourselves, our understanding of him and our understanding of our very own purpose. So what we're going to do today, we're going to make our way down through the book of Ephesians, we're going through Ephesians, we're going to look at the first 10 verses of chapter 2 and we're going to discover, Paul is going to reorient us to a clearer vision of who all of us are as humanity and a clearer picture of who God is. And he's going to talk about issues that relate to each one of us. Now, by way of background, for those of you who weren't here last week, we started off looking uh, primarily at one sentence that went on for 11 verses last week where Paul begins his letter and he just bursts forth into praise to talk about how wise God is, how he has a plan and a desire to have a people for himself and he has a purpose for humanity. And then he praises the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Son, as he is the one who secures a people for the Father. And thirdly, he prays the Holy Spirit, whom he said keeps us until the day of redemption. If you were to read verses 15 to 23 of the rest of the chapter, you would then discover that Paul makes a prayer for the Ephesians, and I think a prayer for us. And he would say to us, and his prayer would be, that we would get a greater understanding in greater insight, we would put on the spectacles of faith, as it were, to come to appreciate who God is. And he's going to make a very bold statement in verses 19 and 20 in chapter 1, where he's going to talk about Christ being raised up and seated in heavenly places. And he's going to identify the Christian church, those who have believed in God and have faith in Jesus. And he's going to say, you too are part of that people. Now the question naturally arises, and this is what he's going to address in our passage today, is that if we're the people of God and if we're the people that he's called, why are we so weak? Why do we choose to sin? Why don't we have good relationships? And he's going to clarify some things about our human nature and who we are before Christ and then he's going to elucidate who we should be and the people that we should be aiming to be now as people seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So let's just jump straight on into our text. And in our first three verses, basically the passage is going to divide this, this way. First three verses, he's going to tell us that spiritual death is the common predicament of everybody in this room. Spiritual death is our common predicament as humanity. And it's interesting as he starts off this letter to give us a correct glimpse of ourselves, he is going to give us really a lesson in anthropology. You see, he is going to paint here a picture of us being spiritually dead. He's going to paint, us, paint a picture of humanity as a group which is fraught with weakness. 
with sin. And it's, it's unusual here, but as the passage opens up, it says, as for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sin. He's not going to paint a picture of positive humanity. You know, you meet some people and they'll tell you, if you ask them, why should God let you into heaven? Often one of the responses is, well, I've done some pretty good things and the idea is that I've done enough good things to sort of outweigh the bad things. And often that comes from a fraught or a failed view of who we really are when we look at the Bible. You see, the Bible will say, contrary to, to uh, some psychologists, that we are not uh, a tabula rasa, we're not a, a blank slate, we don't come into the world neutral, rather we have a bent and an orientation towards evil. And here he's writing to Christians, he's writing to a church, people who have believed in Jesus, and he's looking back retrospectively and saying, this is your condition before you came to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said, it's one of spiritual death. Now, a few years ago, uh, here, here we go, here's a nice picture of a coffin, that's how he starts. You are dead in your trans- transgressions and sin. And I think the base place that we need to start off with in understanding God's purposes is our own condition. All of us here were born spiritually dead. Stone cold dead as we stepped out of the womb, said Bob Dylan. That's true. We were born spiritually dead. Some of us uh, came into the world and we've grown up and we might be white and dead. Others might be brown and dead. Some of us are short and dead. Others might be tall and dead. You might be from a particular suburb and dead. But all of us were dead. He doesn't say you were partially dead. He doesn't say you were in a comatose state. That's not the metaphor that he'll use here. He will say you were without life. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body or a a dead person, but a dead person cannot respond. I was involved in doing some uh, ministry a few years ago and I remember going to a funeral of a particular culture where they would lie with the deceased for about three days in this big meeting house. And when you would turn up to the funeral, you would go up and you would greet the deceased. So if you were a woman, you would go up to the coffin and you would kiss the dead person. If you were a man, you would go up and you would rub noses with the deceased. And I remember going to see my friend, uh, we called him Uncle Sonny, he was an old Christian man, and I remember going to his funeral. And as I sat there beside his coffin and I looked at Uncle Sonny, Uncle Sonny was dead, he was with the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. But it really came home to me that this physical body was nothing more at that stage than a shell. And yet this is the imagery Paul is going to use of us. A more helpful image might uh, be from a few years ago. I'm not a horror movie person. Uh, it's interesting, I once had dinner with Wes Craven who produced Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream and some other things and he, he, he scared me having dinner with this guy. But I'm not a scary sort of person. I just don't enjoy those movies. Some people like, you know, the Wiggles. Other people like Nightmare on Elm Street. Okay, I'm more of a Wiggles kind of guy. (laughs) But when you watch, uh, there was one movie that I was in Chicago with a friend of mine and he said, Malcolm, you've got to see this movie, The Sixth Sense. And I'm just like, I said, oh, I heard it's a bit scary and I'm one of these cover your eyes kind of guy. Not my cup of tea. And he just kept, he's like, I haven't seen it, but I really want to see it. I said, listen, his name is Dave. I said, Dave, We'll get it out. I'll watch it with you, but you have to watch it. We have to, you have to stay awake, okay? Because I'm just like a scaredy cat, you know? I just don't enjoy this. Sort of thing. 
So anyway, Dave rocks out and he goes down to the local blockbuster and he gets uh, this movie, The Sixth Sense. Basically, the story revolves around this little boy named Cole and this psychologist who unfortunately has the name Malcolm in the movie. <laughs> yeah, it's no good. Okay, 10 or 15 minutes into the movie, my fr- I look over and my friend Dave is gone skis. Okay, he is dead asleep. And so I'm watching this movie and I'm covering my eyes and, you know, there are certain scenes when the music goes quiet and you're expecting like a cat to jump out or something or, a, you know, a dead person to run past. And so I'm covering my eyes and the worst part was then I, I cover my eyes at one scene and then I hear, Malcolm, Malcolm! And, the, and I was, it was just... It was, but if you've seen the movie Sixth Sense, the basic premise revolves around this boy who makes these claims and he says, when I look out, I see dead people. Okay, and he sees them everywhere. And at the end of the movie, you find out that Bruce Willis is dead, which is kind of a weird thing. If Sorry if you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> I'll save, I've just saved you an hour. Okay, but the idea was in this movie that these people that will walk around were physical corpses, but there was no life in them. That is how Paul paints the picture of humanity apart from a relationship with God. And that's a challenge for you and I because we often think that, oh yeah, somebody, if they're apart from God, we often think, oh, you know, they could just really improve their life if they had a relationship with, with God. Or we say, you know, I just think they'd have such peace if they, they would just commit their life to God and Christ. We don't view them as spiritually dead people, as people without life. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. He comes and he desires that people would truly live and live in relationship with him. But let's look through the, a few ideas here in these verses. The first thing we discover is that in spiritual deadness we live according to the values of this world. This is one of the signs. It's going to give us three or four symptoms here of what spiritual deadness is and what causes it. He says here, in deadness we live according to the values of this world. It starts off, uh, verse 2a, uh, really the end of verse 1. You are dead in your transgressions and sin in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. The ways of this world. The word world is the Greek word cosmos. It's where we get the word cosmetics or cosmology. It's the idea of having a structure or an order. And the picture here that Paul uses this term, John uses this term in regards to world, and he will say that any system that leaves God out of the equation is part of this world structure. And he would say before you came into a relationship with Christ, you were driven, you were governed, you followed after the ways and the values of this world. He will say that is a sign of spiritual death. There's a second thing. In deadness we lived according to the ruler of the age. He goes on and he says, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Now I should correct one thing. Back in the, uh, you know, Christians sometimes unfortunately react uh, against things a little prematurely. An example of that was in the, the 1920s and 1930s when they came to this verse. It says, talking about the ruler of the kingdom of the air and the ruler here is probably a reference to the devil or Satan. And when it says the kingdom of the air, unfortunately in the 1920s and 30s, 
Christians thought radio, some Christians thought radio was the biggest evil in the world because it went out through the airwaves. Okay, it's probable that Paul wasn't thinking about that. Uh, Some clever interpretation there, but it just won't work. That's a problem when you study the Bible, it ruins too many good sermons. Okay, but here he says that the ruler of the kingdom of the air, we used to live according to his negative influence. In in ancient times, Aristotle will talk about this and I think Paul might be correcting or picking up on the idea, but the idea was between the earth and the moon in this, this, this area of space, that we refer to as air or, uh, you know, as part of the solar system, there is a belief, at least in Aristotle and others, that the spirits filled this void. That is, the things that were unseen, the spirit beings filled up between the earth and the moon. Now, whether Paul's picking up on that idea and correcting it, Paul certainly points out that there there are spiritual realities, and he'll pick this up again in chapter 6. But his point is very basic. In deadness, this world along with the devil, leaves God out of the equation and it's a sign of spiritual death. But then thirdly, in verse 3a, we lived according to the desires of the flesh and the mind. It says here, at one time gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Now I have cravings every now and then. Uh, They talk about pregnant women, women having cravings. Uh, it worked the opposite way when we, we had a baby. My wife would get pregnant and I would have the cravings. Uh, I wanted Tim Tams. You know, I wanted pizza. Okay? But the idea of cravings is to have an appetite for something. And Paul will look back and he'll say to the, these Christians, he'll say, before you had life with God and a relationship with God, one of the signs of your spiritual death was that you pursued life to please your own appetites and your own selfish ambition. And friends, that is one of the sure giveaways that somebody is spiritually dead. They don't bring God into their equation. They live to please themselves. And then he closes this first section by saying, in deadness we were objects of God's wrath. Uh, Again, we often like to think that all of humanity are somehow God's children. The picture that he paints here He's going to say that that our depravity actually makes us at enmity with God. That is, we're enemies of him. We are not in good relationship apart from Christ. And the picture that he paints here, it says that by nature we were objects of wrath. And and there's there's questions of the nature-nurture debate and how much we're shaped by our, our cultural context. Here he's going to be very clear, as we find else. Elsewhere, if we get a biblical anthropology, that humanity is not a blank slate. We come into the world with a natural bent and a nature to rebel against God. So, so far we've looked at spiritual death. It's our common predicament. Now, again, he's talking here to a church and he's going to say that's no longer your situation. But I would suggest today, if you have not embraced the claims of Jesus Christ and you have not accepted God's forgiveness, which we're going to talk about, you need to put yourself in this category and you need to recognise that you are indeed an object of wrath. It's a very serious claim that Paul is making. Let's move on to the second section, verses 4 to 10. And here we're going to discover that spiritual life is our undeserved privilege. Okay, the first three verses talked about what we actually 
did deserve because of our sinful nature. Here in verses 4 to 10, we're going to discover that there are certain things that are ours, not because we're good people, but solely because God has been kind to us. And this is why uh, this word undeserved is going to be a key concept in this passage. So let's make our way, way through it. Uh, this passage opens up literally in Greek with these two words. And these are the two, uh, you, you, we love a couple of Greek words. We know amen or amen and we know, uh, what's another one, agape. Okay, we know a couple of token Greek words. These are the words that you're hanging out for when you get to Ephesians. If you go through Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 3, he's going to say bad news, you're dead, you deserve it, you're, you're a walking zombie as it were, you're controlled by your passions. And then he's going to give us two very nice Greek words. But God, they're theos. He's going to say, but God. And aren't you thankful that he gets to the but God? I don't know about you, but if that was my, my situation back in the past, I was in all sorts of trouble. How do you make a relationship good with God when you're spiritually dead? You see, a spiritually dead person cannot do good works. Often, uh, when I have conversations with people about getting their life right with God, they'll say, well, I'll do enough good to outweigh my bad. But the Bible will say, actually, when you put the spectacles of truth on, you're spiritually dead. A dead person doesn't do good works. A dead person, spiritually, cannot please God. They can't pray enough. They can't tell enough. They can't do enough. They can't earn God's favour because they are dead. They are without life. And that's quite simply the state we're in. But then he opens up and he says, but God. God grants new life here on the basis of his love. There are several things that he's going to list here and we're going to discover first of all, uh, but because of his great love for us, God rich in his mercy, and he goes on. And this is all motivated by God's love. Love is one of the key themes in the book of Ephesians. He's going to talk about God loving us. And we looked last week in God's divine agenda. He loves us and he calls us to be a people for himself. In fact, when we get to the application components from chapter 4 to chapter 6, one of the great emphases in this book is going to be now you need to love one another. But as he opens up here, it's all done on the basis of love. And this is a character or characteristic rather of God. Secondly, God grants new life on the basis of mercy. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It's funny, he's not, I'll give some people a little bit of mercy. Okay, he's rich in mercy. Okay, he's not, you know, like the Scottish dad. My grandfather's from Scotland, you know, they're a bit frugal. It's like the Scottish, the, the Scottish boy asks his dad, he says, Dad, Dad, can I borrow 50 bucks? And his dad says, 20 bucks? What do you want 10 bucks for? Here's five, split with your brother. <laughs> okay, we're not talking about a God who's stingy and said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll give you some mercy, but do your best. No, God is rich in mercy. He lavishes it upon people who don't deserve it. In fact, that is at the very heart of this word, elios, this Greek word for mercy. It's the idea that you give somebody Give something to somebody who doesn't deserve it. Aristotle talked about this. He talked about uh, mercy in the context of giving something to someone who's been afflicted. Now, in our context, we know we've been afflicted by sin and it's been self-inflicted because of our nature. But the picture here is a God who is merciful to us. 
Thirdly, God grants new life on the basis of grace through faith. These are some of the great verses that many of us know. Movies like Amazing Grace or songs like Amazing Grace. Grace is one of the key words in Christianity. Grace has a lot of overlap with mercy. It's the same idea that you get something that you just don't deserve. This is the great thing about salvation. We use this term in Christian circles about somebody getting saved and this is a a Paul word. And the word salvation or sozo, this word has the idea of deliverance. One of my favourite TV shows that that, uh, I currently watch is the one where you get all these tourists, it's like surf rescue, and you get all these tourists and they're up the Gold Coast and they're like, hey, I'm going to rent a surfboard and go outside the flags and find a rip, you know, and, <laughs> and, and, and they, they end up like way out and they're, they're waving their arms around, holding onto a surfboard, you know, hoping not to lose their deposit on it, you know, and they're out there and the guys and the girls get out there and I always wanted to be one of those but I never did. Um, but they go out there and they grab them on the board and they rescue them and sometimes they, they do mouth them out resuscitation and they bring life to them. In fact, surf, life, rescue. Okay, that's their job, to save people at a much greater depth. All of us here are spiritually dead, yet God takes the action of imparting new life to people. He saves people. He delivers them from sin and gives them new life. But you'll notice he doesn't just give it to everybody. It's done through faith. Look at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, by means of faith. That is, it's an instrumental use of the term here. By means, by way of faith. If you want to receive life as God intends, you need to trust or have faith in what he has done for you. The Bible teaches us here and elsewhere that we were dead in sin and God sent his son Jesus to be the one who saves us. That's why I refer to Jesus as our saviour. He comes and he dies upon a cross for our sins. He's raised again three days later to show that he is God's acceptable sacrifice for sins and to show his power. And now God says, if you will believe and trust in what I have done for you, you can have this gift. And it's interesting in the image he uses here. It's a gift And he even wants to make that very clear to us. He says it's not by doing works. It's not about doing good things that will get you to heaven and get you a right relationship with God. Because if that was the case, we could say to God, yeah, God, I appreciate you showing mercy, but, you know, I threw my two cents worth in as well. You've got to give me some credit. No, no, no. He looks down upon us and sees dead people and he says, I'm going to graciously give them the gift of life. And this is based on faith. And I think it's an appropriate question as we go through this passage. Have you accepted this gift? You see, it's one thing for me to tell you, man, this gift is great. It's great to have a relationship with God. And it's great for you to come to EU and to hear other people talking about having a dynamic relationship with God. But friends, it's like a gift. I can give you the gift and I can wrap it up nicely and I can you know, put a special bow, or get my wife to put a special bow on it. <laughs> I could put it on the front desk and say, here's a gift. If you don't pick it up and you walk out and go to your next lecture, that gift is useless. You have not appropriated that gift. And friends, I would encourage you here, God in love, in mercy, 
in kindness, in grace, offers you the gift of life that you don't deserve and all he says is accept it by faith. That might be a challenge for some of you here today. Perhaps you haven't received that gift and if you haven't, talk with the person who brought you. Talk with me. But there's no greater joy than experiencing real life here through faith. God grants new life also on the basis of power. <coughs> if you were to look in the previous context, it talks about Christ being raised from the dead and seated in the right, uh, seated in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places. Incredibly, in this passage, uh, particularly in verse 6, he's going to use three verbs. He's actually, one of the verbs is going to be used in verse 5 and then two other verbs that he used in verse 6. And these verbs begin with the, the prefix soon, which means together. He will say, you've been given, you've been made alive together with Christ. He will say, you have been raised with Christ. He'll say, you have been seated with Christ. And these three verbs show that salvation and our moving from death to life is actually what God does. We are related to Christ, but it is God's power that saves us. Again, this is his initiative, not ours. And finally, God grants new life in accordance with his purpose. What is his purpose? Verse 6 gives us a, a purpose clause here. It says he's done this in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. You know what we're going to be singing in a thousand years, in two thousand years, in four million years? We're going to be reflecting on how kind and gracious God is because he saved people who didn't deserve it. Why did God do it? That he might have a people for himself and ultimately that he would be honoured and glorified. But there's a second component to this as well. There's the idea in verse 10 that we are created as God's workmanship. That's the idea that we're made uh, almost like clay pots. Now, again, in year 8 at Lithgow High School, uh, one of the other classes I did besides music was art. Okay, and only because it was an easy class. And uh, I remember we had a teacher and she was kind of out of there. I was a bit out of there as well, but uh, I remember having Miss Murchie. She had screaming, loud, bright red hair and she would have us come to class and she was mainly fellas in the class and she would say, okay class, let's sit on the ground. And we'd all look at each other, is this legitimate, all right, why not? You know, we'd sit on and she'd say, let's hum to this music. And she'd play like this sort of Beatles chirping and stuff and we'd hum. And then she'd say, get up. Now get your creative juices and here's a piece of clay. Make something. <laughs> you know, and, and perhaps it was the Beatles chirping but I just grabbed it and fiddled around and I tried to make a pot or tried to make something that looks symmetrical. Okay, and then you put it in the kiln, it's fantastic. But when you... When you make something like that, that's a, that's a picture here of this term crafted or workmanship. It's the idea that God gets his fingers on us and he moves us and moulds us for his own purpose. So even though God, even though we, when we come to Christ and live with God, we do good things and we want to honour Christ, at the end of the day, this is what God has created us for. He gets all the credit because he gives us new life and then the new life he gives us, he says, it's for my purpose. And here's the plan that I have for you. God gives us new life in accordance with his divine purpose. So a couple of things for us to think about. First is this. Each one of us, if you're going to put the glasses on today and know what truth is, a biblical perspective 
is that each one of us here in this room you need to recognise is entrenched in sin. Every person walking on this university campus today, the Bible would say, was born and by nature is a sinner. You need to understand that if you're going to go and share God's love. Second, that you need to recognise there's nothing remarkable, nothing good that we bring to the table that merit, merits God's favour. Okay, there's nothing you and I do. He doesn't look upon us and say, man, that guy's a superb mind. I'm going to get that, that person. They're going to you know, get a benefit. Or he lives in Glebe, fantastic. You know, straight to the top of the list. Okay, there's nothing that you and I can bring to the table. Thirdly, a gift is only good if you accept it. I've said this before. We talk about the gift of salvation. If you leave here today thinking, oh, okay, God offers a gift, but you've never accepted it, I would say that's a very foolish and an unwise thing to do, but it's also, again, reiterating your deadness by demonstrating, God, I'm not interested in in you and you in my life. I would encourage you to receive and accept this gift. And then fourthly, God's purpose is that we might love and serve him. You've been created to honour him and that's what every knee in this room will do one day. They'll bow before him and they will honour with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. So let's ask God to help us, not just to be smarter sinners, but to be people who truly appreciate that we get what we don't deserve and be thankful for that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I just pray that as we listen to your words that we might wear the spectacles of faith and come to a greater appreciation of who you are, what you have done for us, and that we might be a people who are thankful. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.